0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, where tonight we finish the Gospel of Matthew. And before you have any doubts in your minds that that could happen, you'll notice there's only 20 verses. That's doable. Not 66 verses like the previous chapter, just 20. I love Wednesday nights. It's my favorite of all the activities in the week. It's something I always look forward to doing. It's unique in how we gather together in such a informal, cruisy kind of a format, sitting down, Bibles open, going verse by verse through the book. I always call this our living room. This is a large living room, perhaps, but this is where we just, in a simple way, gather together and go through the Bible. Um, We're a family, and we're a family in a living room, but every family also has rules. You remember growing up, your dad and your mom had certain things you couldn't, couldn't do in the house after certain times, at certain times. So a couple rules, number one, that you stay awake during the study. Uh, Number two, that you don't get up and down, move around during the study. We don't want any distractions. You could become a distraction if you decided that you just wanted to go somewhere else and get a burger or go home early. Um, If you feel that you won't be able to stay for the entire Bible study, we respectfully ask that while we bow our heads in prayer, you would move to the very edge of the auditorium, that is the very back, and then your moving wouldn't be noticeable except... To me, but not to anybody else. Let's pray. You're our Father, Lord. You're the Father of this family. And You have adopted us as sons and daughters into the body of Christ, the kingdom of God. We're already experiencing and tasting what it's like to be in relationship with You through the ups, the downs of our lives. We've been able to see how faithful you are and how much in control you are. And I pray that as we close out our time in this great book of Matthew's Gospel, that we will be encouraged to not hold back any trust that we might be holding to that we would have no reserve in entrusting you with our future, our family, our concerns. You promised in the Psalms that you will perfect that which concerns us. You are trustworthy. And in that faithfulness that we know you to be and have, we entrust not only this evening, but our very lives And help us, Lord, not to be distracted by other concerns, but to focus on what the Spirit of God is saying to the people of God through the agency of the Word of God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark Twain, a.k.a. Samuel Clemens, one of America's great authors, made an interesting remark when he said, that a lie can make its way halfway around the world while truth is still lacing up her boots. Lies seem to travel faster than truth. Sensationalistic ideas get the press. Make headlines, make news. Uh, New ideas, new theories get people's attention. Back in the 1800s, there was an author by the name of Ernest Renan. You may have heard of him. Uh, He was trained as a Catholic priest. He was a scholar, albeit he became a very liberal scholar, and he was influenced by the writings of Immanuel Kant and George Friedrich Hegel. And with those Philosophical worldviews in mind, he read the scripture and interpreted the scripture according to those philosophical ideals. So when he came to the resurrection, he then sought to explain it away by saying there really was no literal resurrection. Jesus didn't rise physically from the dead, but rather the disciples who were emotionally imbalanced had hallucinations. They thought they saw him. They loved him so much. And being mentally unstable and in a high emotional, high strong state, they simply imagined that they saw Jesus alive from the dead. But it was simply a hallucination. And Mary Magdalene, who will be mentioned here in our text, she thought that she heard Jesus speak her voice. Or her name saying, Mary. But it really wasn't Jesus at all. It was a gardener, but she thought it was Jesus. Actually, the scripture says just the opposite. Mary thought it was a gardener when it was actually Jesus. Now, when Ernest Renan wrote that in his book, The Life of Jesus in the 1800s, he had no evidential reason to do that. There was no hard science behind it. He had no real good facts at his disposal. It was just a theory that he made up based on his philosophical worldview. And yet, within the first month, that writing sold 60,000 copies. Amazing. Fast forward to 1966 when another author by the name of Hugh Schoenfield wrote a book called The Passover Plot, where he said that Jesus was aware of some of the prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah's death and resurrection, and so Jesus sought to manipulate himself, the events in his life and the people in his life, to feign his own death and a supposed resurrection to get people to believe in him. It was all a plot, said Schoenfield. So, in collusion with Joseph of Arimathea and a couple of other guys, he persuaded them to give him a drug that would put him into a death-like coma, but that he really wouldn't die. And then later on, while he's on the cross, he would be able to make it, he would suffer, but then being placed in this coma, they thought that he would be dead and then later on he would get up and it would be a fake resurrection. But says Schoenfield, the plot backfired when the Roman spear went through Jesus' side and out came blood and water. So they killed him and the plot fell apart. But the disciples went on to believe in a resurrection. What's amazing about the book are two things, number one, the academic world paid it no heed at all, because it wasn't based on any good, hard evidence. But what was most amazing is that within the first few months, Schofield sold 100,000 copies. Back to what Mark Twain said, a light can make its way halfway around the world while truth is still lacing up her boots. It seems that if you want to write a bestseller these days, just write about vampires or weird sexual exploitations, or some newfangled theory on the life or death or resurrection of Christ. And it seems to be a winner because time and time again, these things keep coming up with no real good factual evidence, and yet they sell over and over again. There are three credentials to Jesus Christ and His life. Number one, His impact upon human history. Number two, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And number three, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In chapter 28, the 20 verses speak about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This makes Jesus Christ absolutely, totally unique among all men, all people. And all faiths, though they share certain things in common, the resurrection of Christ sets Christianity apart. For you see, most belief systems, most religious ideologies will base the religion upon the sayings, the teachings of the founder, the philosophical postulates of the founder. They're categorized, they're written down, or they're in oral form, and they're passed on. And most religious systems are based around those sayings or teachings of some founder, some charismatic leader. There are only four world religions that squarely are based upon personalities. And that is Judaism, especially with Moses as the chief personality giving the law, and a few others. Christianity with Christ. Islam with Muhammad and Buddhism with Buddha. But of those four religions that base their belief systems squarely on personalities, only one, only one, claims a resurrection from the dead for its founder. So let's see what the documents say. Not what Schoenfeld or Renan or others have postulated, but what the scriptures say. Verse 1, chapter 28 of Matthew. Now, after the Sabbath... As the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, we think the other Mary to be um, Mary, the mother of James the Less, and Joseph, who is mentioned in the previous chapter, we already covered that. That is probably the other Mary. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. I imagine that Mary Magdalene and this other Mary got really no sleep that night. I think they tossed and turned on their cot. The events of the last few days, the crucifixion of Jesus, seeing Him come off the cross. Joseph of Arimathea placing Him in His tomb. Every little noise, every dog barking in the neighborhood, they'd wake up. Their hearts were so burdened. Then finally, they get up really early, get some spices together, the Bible says, to anoint the body of Jesus at the tomb. So off they go in the darkness, just as the light is, is coming up and it's still kind of dusky and shadowy around town. And they go looking for the tomb where Jesus was placed, that they might anoint His body. It was customary and still is customary to visit the grave... Of loved ones after their death. You might wonder if you've never had the experience of somebody close to you dying. Why is that? Why, why do people go back to a cemetery? The person isn't alive. The body is simply placed in the ground because that symbolizes their last contact with that individual. Still, when I'm in town in California, I go visit my father, my mother, and my brother's gravesite. And I think back to their life, I think back to the funeral. It's bittersweet, it's accompanied with tears, but it, it represents that last contact that we had with that person as we paid them that respect and, and buried them. Now, according to the Jews, not all of them, but there was a belief that among some of the Jews, they held that the spirit of the deceased hovered over the tomb for three days. In fact, some people believed, and I'm not saying Mary Magdalene believed, but she might have, that the Spirit was hovering over the tomb seeking to re-enter the corpse. But that after the fourth day, when decomposition began to set in and the body becomes more, well, not recognizable, that's when the Spirit departs. That is why those first few days, Jewish relatives, family and friends will amass around the grave to pay their respects until the fourth day. Early in the morning, she is coming. And it says, behold, there was a great earthquake. Now, let me just back up. The reason she comes on this day is because she couldn't go the day before because the day before was the Sabbath. And according to the Jews, you could only take a Sabbath day's journey. Remember what that is? It's anything up to two-thirds of a mile. So because Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were obviously staying at a greater distance than that, they couldn't walk that far on the Sabbath, so they had to wait for the first day of the week. So off they go. And behold, there was a great earthquake... And you remember in the previous chapter when Jesus died on the cross, there was a huge earthquake. After uh, many earthquakes, there are subsequent earthquakes often that follow. But, but that really wasn't what, what was the cause of this. This is because something happened at the tomb site. Behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door. And sat on it. Don't you love to read that? I'm tickled by it. The idea that Matthew gives us this little detail that the angel didn't just roll back the tomb, uh, the stone, but got on top of it and just sat on it. I just like to picture an angel doing the work and then it's like, okay, that's done. I'm just going to sit here now. Just kind of hanging out. Why would the angel do that? Because the angel wants to scare off some people. His countenance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow. And the guards, these are the Roman guards, shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Now consider a few things. We're not surprised, are we, that angels are attending the resurrection of Jesus Christ? We would sort of expect that to happen. I mean, this is the greatest event of all. All of heaven has been anticipating. All of heaven has been very interested in the resurrection. In fact, I'll even back up and say all of heaven and hell was very interested in the events surrounding the life, death, and question mark resurrection of Jesus. We're not surprised because angels showed up at the incarnation of Jesus. They were surrounding the skies in Bethlehem, singing His praises, or I should say speaking forth His praises. At the temptation of Jesus, the angels were there. For after Jesus was tempted 40 days in the wilderness, remember Mark's gospel tells us, the angels came and ministered unto Him. So at the incarnation, at the temptation, number three, at the affliction of Jesus when He was in the Garden of Gethsemane facing His greatest earthly trial. Jesus was in agony. The Bible says God sent an angel from heaven to minister to Him. And then fourth and finally, here at the resurrection. So we're not surprised. We would expect it. The word angel, angelos, in Greek, means a messenger. Did you know that 34 books of the Bible mention angels? 17 in the Old Testament and 17 in the New Testament mentioned the ministry or the presence of God's angels. Now sometimes, many times, I would say most times, angels are invisible. But sometimes... The Lord for His own purposes gives them a physicality, a temporal body, a corpus, so they can relate to human beings. Sometimes they look like typical human beings. Like in Genesis chapter 18, when three men came to Abraham's tent and He entertained them and cooked them a meal with His wife Sarah. Two of them, we find out, were angels, but they look like dudes they were angelic dudes and they ate a meal with Abraham goodness what do you cook for an angel well I guess angel food cake would work right that's sort of a no brainer But sometimes however they came in more brilliance and the body that they assumed wasn't just a human body but it was enough to scare the pajabers out of you Like here, it says they shook like dead men or they shook for fear of him and became like dead men. I believe in angels. I believe I've experienced the ministry of angels. The Bible says that God sends us angels to minister to those of us who inherit salvation. Isn't that great? Now, some of you, just by the way you live, you probably have a few more angels than some of the rest of us. I think sometimes I do in some of the activities that I engage in. It's like, Lord, thank you for your angels. You've been so faithful. At the same time, I don't carry it too far, and I am sometimes suspicious. In fact, I would say frequently suspicious when somebody will come up and say, I saw an angel. How do you know? And I remember years ago, I used to um, uh, hear these reports of people out on the freeway and their car stopped. And it was sort of the same rendition told in a few different ways of somebody who their car pulled over and an an angel showed up. And and... angel sightings are sort of like Elvis sightings. (laughs) When somebody says they saw Elvis, I get suspicious. When somebody says they saw an angel or encountered an angel, I don't deny their ministry. I'm just a little bit reserved, because I've seen that idea in these stories abused. But this was an angel that came out of heaven, and he sat on the tomb. Why did the angel roll the stone away? Was it to let Jesus out? No. Jesus didn't need anybody to move the stone. If he can... um, supernaturally rise from the dead out of those tightly wound bandages that we've told you about, he can, and go through walls later on. He could just go right through that stone. So the stone was rolled away by the angel, not to let Jesus out, but to let people in so they could see. This is a miracle. He's gone. He's not, no longer here. I love this rendition. His countenance. What he looked like was like lightning, just so bright. His clothing as white as snow, blinding. And the guards, that is those Roman guards. Remember we told you there were between 10 and 16 well-armed, well-disciplined Roman soldiers. The guards shook for fear of him. The word for shook is the same word previously in the chapter before for earthquake. So the earth shook. And here the men shook and became like dead men. Have you ever been so shaken up at something that happened that you literally shake your body? Ever wonder why you do? Why, pe- why do people shake when they're afraid? Well, it's interesting. In your body, you have two glands attached to your kidneys called adrenal glands, and they secrete that, that chemical adrenaline. And the reason adrenaline is secreted during times of psychological trauma like that is to enable the fight-or-flight mechanism that is in you. Should you fight or should you run? So adrenaline is pumped into your bloodstream. And that causes your heart to beat faster. That causes more oxygen to be available to your muscles. Your pupils dilate in your eyes so that if you're in darkness, you'd be able to see better to know should you stay or run. Second, glucose that is stored in your body is released into the muscles to give them necessary energy in case they have to do extra work in that fight-or-flight mechanism. So the person begins to shake, and all that is is your muscles are warming up in case you need to start working that dude over or run like the wind. So your muscles are warming up, and they demonstrate that by shaking violently. Now, you, you lose fine motor skills during that. You wouldn't be able to, like, write something with a pen. But you would be able to do some extraordinary thing. So they're shaking. The adrenaline's kicking in. But this was more than just a little bit of psychological trauma. They fainted because of it. For it says they became like dead men. They just collapsed. So... If you see an angel, I would think on some occasions you would certainly know. But the angel answered and said to the women. Now, obviously the women didn't have the same response. For whatever reason, we're not told. Do not be afraid. Maybe they started getting afraid. And angels had to say, don't do that. No need to. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. So, put yourself into the thinking of these women. They get up early in the morning, they bring the spices, they're going to the tomb. What do they expect to find? A corpse. Not a resurrected Savior, but a corpse, a dead body. Now, When they left home with the spices, they didn't really think through all the possible problems that would arise. Like, how are we going to move a two-ton stone to get into the grave? Mark's gospel tells us that as they're going, one of them said, Who's going to roll the stone away? But love doesn't ask those questions. Love is more a gut response. You get up, you love Jesus, you get those spices, you've got to go to His side, you've got to go to the grave, and you want to perform an act of love in preparing His body for burial. Nobody did that. They want to do that. And so they go. When they go, they find that whatever problem they, they were thinking about has been solved. Now, just just learn this lesson. You will discover as a Christian, so many times, the problem is all up here. You concoct the problem. Oh no, this is going to get really bad. I can't see any way out of this. There's no way that stone is going to be moved. And then you get there, and you discover God's already gone before you and solved the problem. And you just spend a night worrying for nothing. the angel was there the problem was solved and the angel was said i know that you seek jesus who is crucified he is not here he is risen as he said i stop right there this proves something sometimes and i'm saying some of these things tonight because we're dealing with a fact of history that is attested to over and over again, but is discounted by people like Hugh Schoenfield, like Ernest Renan, and many others to this day. And they try to trap Christians. I just want to give you some answers and some ammunition. Years ago, a German philosopher by the name of Ludwig Feuerbach started something that really caught fire. It's called Uh, The Christian religion and wish fulfillment. That is, all the Christian religion is, is wish fulfillment. That, that, That people, like Mary, had a wish that Jesus would be raised from the dead. So they would hallucinate or they would mistake the tomb or a number of explanations because they're trying to bring to pass what they really want because they sense something deep inside. It's simply wish fulfillment. Here's where that argument breaks down. By the record of all of the writings we have extant from that time, all of the texts tell us that the apostles or the women, none of them were predisposed to any resurrection. The fact that they would take spices to anoint the body of Jesus for burial proves that they didn't expect to see a raised human being, but a corpse that they would perform one final act of kindness toward. There was no predisposition. There was no wish fulfillment. They just came and unexpectedly saw what they saw. Now, verse 6, He's not here, He is risen. As He said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell His disciples that He is risen from the dead, and indeed He is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, behold, I have told you. There's four words I want you to notice in the text that we just read. Come, see, go, tell. Those are four words that every Christian should follow. Four words for Easter. Come, see, go, tell. Consider the first word, come. Angel is trying to invite them into the tomb. Well, tombs can be scary. You know, they're seeing an empty tomb, or at least they're seeing a stone rolled away. And there is that tomb opened up when the last time they saw the tomb, it had been closed by Joseph of Arimathea and then guarded by soldiers. There's an open tomb who's hiding in that tomb. Are there grave robbers in there? There'd be enough to keep them out, to not have them come. But the angel invites them to come. Now, did you know that the word come is one of the great words of the gospel? Come. Jesus never told people, go away, you bother me. He told people to come. To the early disciples who were disciples of John the Baptist, when they saw Jesus at the Jordan River, and they said, Master, where are you staying? He said, come and see. When Peter and the others were in the boat, when Jesus walked on the water on the Sea of Galilee, and Peter said, Master, if it's you, bid me to come. And Jesus said, come. The children that tried to see Christ and the disciples tried to push them away. Jesus said, Don't forbid the children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of God. That's always the first word, come. Yourself, come. Second word is see. The word for see here is the Greek word aido, which means to experience or to perceive, to enter into an experience and to understand or perceive something. Come and check it out, we might say. So what would they, if they were coming into the tomb, what would they see? They would see a few things. Number one, they would see the humility of Christ. The humility of Christ. This is the extent to which God would go and Christ would go and obeying the Father in coming from heaven, assuming the body of a human being coming to this earth and dying on the cross and being placed in that tomb. That, friends, you can see the humility of Jesus. Look how humble He is to leave heaven and be put in that rock grave. Paul says in Philippians, he humbled himself and became a man subject unto death. So you see the humility of Jesus. Number two, you see the reality of sin. You want to find out how bad sin is? You you ever think about, I'm going to toy around with this little activity for a while. I know some people call it sin, but, but, but how bad could it really be? Look at what it did to Jesus. It killed him. He lost his blood, he lost his life, and was placed in that rock tomb for sinners. So when you come, you see, you check out, you perceive the humility of Christ, the reality of sin, and finally, you'll see the victory of life. Because you know what the angel was trying to get them to see? Nothing. Come and look! Nothing's there. That's the point he ain't here. All John says was there was the cocoon from the bandages unruffled that the body just moved through them. And it just flattened out like a tire would flatten out when air is released. There was no unwinding. There was no struggle. He was just gone. Come check it out. Notice the next two words, go and tell. Once you come and once you see, you perceive, you experience, don't stop with that. And and here's where many of us do stop. We go, wow, that's cool, man. Okay, I believe he's raised from the dead. Okay. What are you doing about it? Well, nothing. I've come and I've seen and I believe. Okay. What are you doing about it? See, the angel wants to turn their fascination into proclamation. Go. Tell. Announce it. Come, see, go, and tell. We must never reduce the empty tomb to some religious relic or to some place that we save up thousands of dollars to take a tour to Israel to go see and go, wow, that was really moving. Wow. I'll even shed a tear here. That was so awesome. Great. Once you come and see, now go and tell. You're on a mission. You have a message. The message includes your salvation, but also the victory of Jesus over death that ensures you everlasting life in heaven with Him forever. you got the message of messages. Better than any message at an election for any candidate who will not save America, no one will. You have the message of the glorious, life-changing gospel of Christ. Come, see... Go and tell. See His humility and see His victory. And tell people what you've seen. Tell people what you've seen in terms of changes in your life and changes in other people's life. Your personal testimony, your personal story is what you should go and tell. I'm making a deal out of that, uh, an issue out of this, because there is this idea, and it's prevalent among many people, Christians and, and some churches in particular, that well, you really can't go and tell until you reach some level of maturity, an academic stature. and once you really get it, or or well, I've got so many personal issues in my life and problems, and once I fix that stuff, Then I can go and tell. I'll be free to go and tell. Listen, Jesus is telling this to a woman who is just right now starting to figure out the resurrection. You think she has her theology down pat? Nope. But what she is going to discover is good enough. Take what you see and you go and you tell. Four words. Come, see, go, tell. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. What an interesting mix of emotion. And they ran to bring His disciples' word. And as they went to tell His disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! In the old King Jimmy it says, All hail! And that's because this was a common greeting. It would be like walking by somebody going, sup, or howdy. So they're running, they're on their way. Jesus shows up and says, howdy. What's cool about that? What's cool about that is these women did not have their theology right, but they had their devotional life right theologically they weren't on track yet they're learning the resurrection they're getting their their head their heart around this whole thing this doesn't make sense to them this is what this is not what they expected they had their old that warped eschatology of uh, judaism that i had spoken to you about so theologically they're wrong devotionally they're right They love Jesus, and what they discover, piece by piece, they're going to go out and tell. And Jesus shows up to those ladies and says, Howdy. You know, sometimes as as believers, we get so hardened and tight and legalistic and ungracious with our theology. I'm all for good, clean, solid, right theology. But you can have your theology right, and you can be so right, you're dead right. Get my drift? You're just dead right. There's no real life in you. Jesus told the church at Ephesus, you have it all together theologically. You have discernment. You can't stand those who claim to be apostles but are false apostles. But you have left your first love. You're together theologically. You're out of order devotionally. You don't love me like you did at first. And I submit to you, it's those people, not necessarily who have their theology perfect, but their devotional life is perfect, is right at least, that Jesus will show up to. He'll show himself to them time and time again and go, howdy, it's me, here I am. Now it's best if you can marry both, good doctrine, good theology, with that passion, and that devotion, and that love, and that response. But it's interesting that theologically they're not quite there yet, but devotionally they are right, and Jesus appears to them. And I believe there's a pattern there. Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Oh, the graciousness of Christ! Go and tell my brothers. My brothers? Who were his brothers? Who were his brethren? Well, Peter, John, and all of the apostles who fled, disowned, ran away, will be doubting, who denied him. Go and tell my brothers. No, if I were Jesus, I might have said to Mary afterwards, Go and tell those losers. I have words for them. And I want them alone in Galilee. But that's not our Jesus. Our Jesus, so merciful, so gracious, so knowing the failures of all of us, says, go and tell my brethren, my brothers, to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. Now, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money, literally silver, to the soldiers, saying, Tell them, his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money, and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Go back in your memory and and think about what has happened the last few days, and especially how these leaders, these authorities, were preoccupied from getting the truth out. And all of the... um, Shenanigans! all of the unethical behavior that has gone on in the last few days. Number one, the illegality of the trial before Caiaphas and before Annas, the high priest. Remember, we showed you what the Talmud said and the Mishnah said about how trials were to be conducted, and they violated every single one of those tenets. The illegality of the trial. Number two, the mob psychology, when they were before Pontius Pilate, getting the crowd whipped up, crucify him, crucify him, release Barabbas, and got the whole frenzy going. And number three, blatant bribery. Okay, we've got to come up with a plan. Uh, This has happened. There's an empty tomb, and uh, we're going to give you a lot of money. And so here's the deal. We'll give you this money, but you have to say that um, while you slept, the disciples stole the body. Now, can you see the hole in that logic? Think about it. That is the most illogical thing that you can ever say. Because if somebody says, what happened to Jesus' body? Well, we were sleeping and they stole the body. How would you know who stole the body if you were sleeping? You see, I, 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 don't, I don't know about you, but when I'm asleep, I might dream things but I can't give you facts of what happened last night. I'm unconscious. It's perfectly illogical. So go back to what I opened with, what Mark Twain said about the lie versus truth, what Ernest Renan said in the 1800s, and Hugh Schoenfeld said in the 1960s, and all of the weird ideas about explaining the resurrection. Because you see, I challenge anyone to explain what happened to Jesus on any other basis other than a miraculous resurrection from the dead. Now let me run down what some of the common myths are and the common accusations. Number one, we read it here. The disciples stole the body of Jesus. What's wrong with that? Number one, the disciples were in no mood to steal the body of Jesus. If I read the original documents correctly, They were afraid. They fled. They ran. And presently, before Jesus appeared to them, they were in the upper room behind locked doors. They were scared to death because they thought they could be killed. They would be next. They would be butchered. So they were in no mood to confront 10 to 16 well-armed men and move the stone. Number two... Let's just suppose that the disciples did steal the body. Now, for the disciples to steal the body, according to this little bribery scheme, the guards have to be asleep. Well, for Roman guards to be asleep, they lose their lives. They would sleep in shifts. And if you may remember in the book of Acts, when Paul the Apostle was in the Philippian jail, and a Roman soldier um, guarded him, and uh, the prison was opened, and the guard was going to kill himself, and Paul says, Don't kill yourself. Do yourself no harm. The reason He was going to kill Himself is because He knew it's either I kill myself or I'm going to be killed for falling asleep on the job. But let's say the soldiers were asleep and the disciples are sneaking around the grave. Peter, shh, those big fisherman feet, shh. John, quit burping. Okay, okay, we haven't woken him yet. Now let's quietly move A two ton stone. You see how ridiculous that is? That's going to make so much noise, all the neighbors are going to hear. So, the disciples stole the body doesn't make good sense. Here's another myth. Some will say, well, here's the explanation for the resurrection of Christ the Jews stole the body. Now play that out in your mind and see how ridiculous that is because in the next several weeks, according to the book of Acts, the disciples hit the street in Jerusalem and preach the gospel and thousands upon thousands of Jewish people become believers in Yeshua as the Messiah on the basis that he has been raised from the dead physically. Well, if the Jews stole the body, all they have to do is produce the body. Because the priest became so upset that so many people were believing in Jesus based upon the resurrection, all they had to say is, time out. There's no resurrection. We stole the body. Habeas corpus, we will produce the body. Here it is. Here he is. Here's the evidence that this is all a fabrication. So you can check those off your list. Third lame explanation for the resurrection. Well... The women went to a tomb, and it was an empty tomb, but it happened to be the wrong tomb. You see, it was early in the morning, and your eyesight isn't all that great in the morning, and the sun isn't out, and everything's gray. And if you know the topography of Jerusalem, and this is true, by the way, there are so many tombs scattered around, it'd be easy to get to the wrong tomb. They had tears in their eyes. They were emotionally distraught. So they just went to the wrong tomb. What's wrong with that theory? Well, number one, there were several women, not just two. If we put all of the records together, we find out there was a little group of women. So when you have several people who saw the original event of the execution of Jesus and the tomb he was put in, you have less of a chance they're going to go to the wrong tomb. But let's suppose they did. A couple of the women ran and got Peter and John. Peter and John came to the tomb to check it out. You must then suppose not only did all of the women go to the wrong tomb, but Peter and John also later on in the day when the sun was up went to the wrong tomb. Number three, you have to suppose that the guards went to the wrong tomb. (laughs) That the Jewish Sanhedrin went to the wrong tomb. That the angel went to the wrong tomb. And then, if all of them went to the wrong tomb, all you have to do is ask Joseph of Arimathea. That was his tomb. And you'd have to say, well, he went to the wrong tomb as well. So it's not a tenable explanation to explain away the resurrection. The wrong tomb theory. Explanation number four. Now, these have continued on through history. This is a popular one. It's called the swoon theory, saying that Jesus really didn't die. He just fainted on the cross. He swooned. He was weakened by the loss of blood from the beating, the surcharge and the discharge of blood out of his body and into his body cavities that he just fainted. He swooned and he was near death, but he didn't die. But then he was placed in that cool, damp tomb, and the coolness and the dampness of the tomb served to revive him. Really? (laughs) Gee, just a little bit that I know from my little science days and medical days, uh, people who have been beaten severely and are near death don't get better in cool, damp tombs encased like a mummy in wrappings. But let's suppose that he did. Let's suppose that he got better. How did he get out of those tightly round wet wrappings? And if he did, how did he manage single-handedly to roll uphill a two-ton stone that had been put in place from the outside? Hmm. Okay, well, uh, let me think of something else then. Is there anything else? There actually is, and that is what I started with, the hallucination theory. They hallucinated. They just thought that they saw. What's uh, wrong with that theory? A couple of things. Number one, hallucinations are never corporate. If we all see the same thing objectively, the chance for collusion is just not high on the probability list. They're not corporate. They may be individual. And uh, psychologists will tell us the people who are predisposed to that, certain high-strung personalities, emotionally distraught, on-the-edge persons, can and often do, under extremists, extreme situations, hallucinate. But you have, according to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, 500 people at one time seeing the resurrected Christ. So that's a corporate experience. Number two, you have people with all different emotional dispositions seeing Jesus. Peter, who is sorrowful. Thomas, who is doubtful. Um, The two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24, who were unhopeful. And a whole series of people in all different dispositions experiencing in different settings the resurrected Lord let me give you and I'll close with this because we're about out of time there is actually another explanation I heard about recently that is to me well it's just stupid (laughs) it's that it was the right tomb the body of Jesus was there Joseph of Arimathea put it there sealed up the tomb but later on he had second thoughts and he thought you know what I don't want Jesus to have my tomb. I want my tomb back. I want it for me and my family. i changed my mind. So that he went back, opened up the tomb, took the body of Jesus out, and placed it somewhere else. So they took the money, verse 15, and they did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day, and it still is. I've had conversations with some who will still take option number one even though it's not a logical conclusion. The logical conclusion is what we read here. And the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them, and when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. Oh, what a worship service that must have been. Unlike any other, probably the greatest Most sincere, most emotional worship service throughout history was that worship service that day. As these disciples now had the reality of all of the claims of Jesus Christ now substantiated in one fell swoop, He's conquered death like He predicted. He's standing in front of us. And they worshipped Him. He's divine. He is God in human flesh like He said. I thought my ears were like not hearing that right, but I get it. But then notice what else it says. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I'm saddened by that, but I'm glad that's there because it shows me how trustworthy the biographer Matthew was. You see, a lot of times people, when they want to write biographies of people, they just aggrandize the situation and they sensationalize it and it was magnificent and everybody believed and we all lived happily ever after. He pointed out that even after the resurrection, though it galvanized the faith, there were some who did not believe. Some still had doubts. I don't know what they thought. It's a trick. It's weird. It's not right. I'm seeing things. They worshipped him, but some doubted. You know what? That is a description of every church service that has ever existed. Some believe and some don't. Some have faith and some doubt. A majority might have faith, but there are still some. That go, hey, I don't know. There's something wrong. I'm going to find out. There's something else. Do you want to know what one of the greatest evidences of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is? These disciples, period. If any of those theories that I mentioned were at all possible or tenable, and let's say the disciples knew it, we stole the body, let's keep this lie going, man, we've come this far. Well, we have a problem. Bartholomew was flayed alive. John was boiled in oil. He survived the ordeal and then he was banished to Patmos. Matthew beaten with the club. Thomas went to India, lanced in East India with a spear. And if you go through the list of all of the apostles, all of them died a violent death except John who was banished to Patmos and then survived and died in Ephesus. Don't you think that If they knew this was a lie, that somebody stole the body or any of these things were untenable, that one of them would have broken. Especially, history tells us that not only did they die, but their families, in some cases, were also killed. Don't you think they'd say, okay, time out. I've known this is a lie from the beginning. I'm going to break and tell the truth. The consistent testimony that brought the suffering and death of these apostles, history shows us is one of the greatest evidences for the tenability, believability, authenticity of the resurrection of Christ in the New Testament. They worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Back in verse 18, here's the idea. All authority. Based on all of the authority that has been given to me. You see, the days of Jesus' humiliation are over with. Jesus died, but Philippians says, God, having exalted him, has given him a name above all names, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess. Soon Jesus would be ascending to the right hand of the majesty. Later on, and we're still waiting for it, he will come back take His church, and later come back with His church to the earth to rule and to reign. Daniel chapter 7 talks about the dominion that was given to the Son of Man in that vision of chapter 7 of Daniel, as the Son of Man stood before the Ancient of Days. The humiliation is over. The glorification has come, and soon His reign. I can't wait for that day. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So on the basis of Jesus' authority... We are to go, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples. Go out with the authority of Christ. He told you to do it, do it. And when you do it, know that you have the commissioning authority of the Son of God to preach, to teach, and to make disciples. That's why you can be bold. You have all of His authority that's been given to Him that He passed on to you. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, I've got to tell you something about verse 19. The main word in that verse is not the word go. I know missionaries would like to say that it is, but it is not. The main word in that chapter, the main verb, is make disciples. Disciple, the noun is mathetes in Greek. The verb form, the lexical verb form is matheteo. And the word here for make disciples is something like that it means to discipleize and here is how it is to be rendered having gone discipleize or on your way i'm implying that you will be wherever you go if you go to your job if you go across the world if you go across the street if you go to your son's bedroom or visit your parents having gone as you go and live your life, Discipleize. That is, reproduce yourself in others. You see, never in Jesus' thinking was just simply raising of the hand or the conversion experience, the be-all, end-all of it. You reproduce yourself, so the life of Christ that is in you, you see reproduced in other people. As you both follow Jesus together, you discipleize them. All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Close with this. If you're a believer, go. If you're an unbeliever, come and see. And then go and tell if you're a believer go that's the commission i'm not saying go away i'm not saying i never want to see you here again i do want to see you here again we're a family but in the process of your going wherever you go make disciples of all nations i've been influenced by A guy who's been dead for over a century. His name is William Sangster. Great preacher, wrote about preaching. William Sangster had a debilitating disease where he was becoming more paralyzed and the paralysis would eventually overtake his whole body and kill him. And one Easter Sunday, his vocal cords were paralyzed. He was a preacher. But he had enough strength and ability to write on a note of paper a message for his daughter and the message read this. How horrible... On Easter Sunday, to have no voice, to shout, He is risen. But far worse is to have a voice and not want to shout, He is risen. You have a voice. Go and tell. If you're an unbeliever, come and see and go And tell, remember I said there's three credentials of Jesus Christ, his impact on history, fulfilled prophecy, and his resurrection. You get those things aligned. And if you have doubts, then come and see and check it out for yourself. Give your life to Christ and see what he will do. And I base all that on the resurrected power of Christ. Some years ago, a Muslim in Africa was converted to Christ. I believe in Egypt. A Muslim was converted to Christ. When some who knew him were angry and wanted an explanation as to how, why would he leave Islam and convert to Jesus Christ. He said this. If you were walking down the street, and you came to a fork in the road, and you didn't know which way to go, and there were two men who were there, one was alive and one was dead, which one would you ask for directions? (laughs) I would ask the one who rose from the dead, conquered the grave. Come and see. And when you do, by God's grace, you will go and tell. Father, we bow our heads, we bow our hearts. In so doing, we humble ourselves before you as your matetes, your disciples, your learners, your followers. We're trying to get this right. We're trying to understand as much as we can about who you are and who Jesus is and what he wants us to do. Because we see this thing as a relationship, something that is living and real and authentic. And we want to follow You. We want to know where You're leading us to go. I pray, Father, for Your people, Your church, just like we saw in that the video of some going across the world and others here in this church going across town and sharing. Lord, just just put that unction, that urge, to just obey You enough to open our mouth this week and see what You'll do with it. Even if it's just to invite a person to come and hear. A gospel message or to read or to be a part of an event. Give us that boldness. I pray, Lord, if there's any here who don't know you tonight, that they would come and see and experience who Jesus is. As our heads are bowed, as you're thinking about your own life, your own experiences so far, You ask yourself, are you satisfied with what you've experienced so far in life? Or are you thinking, I wish there was something more. And I wish that more would include my own forgiveness, newness of life, and a relationship with the living God. It can, if you come and see. But you have to come, and you have to see. We often give these opportunities for people to begin their life of discipleship with a decision. Perhaps the Lord has been speaking to you of late and maybe more so tonight. I don't know, but he's been drawing you into a relationship with himself. You're tired of religion. It hasn't given you any answers. You're tired of just going to a church. It hasn't given you any answers. You want to walk with the living God and have a relationship with him. Maybe you once walked closely to the Lord, but you're not in fellowship any longer and you want to experience that peace again and you need to come back to Him. Then you come and see. And if that describes any of you, as we close in prayer, and then in a moment close in song, if that describes you, I want you to raise your hand up in the air so that I can see your hand, I'll acknowledge your hand, and I'll pray for you as we close the service. Slip your hand up and say, Skip, pray for me. Or here, I surrender. Lord bless you in the back, in the way back. I see your hand on my left. A couple of you right here in the middle, right up in the front, on the side, by the aisle on my right. Anyone else? Raise a hand up. Even if you're in the family room, slip your hand up. Any takers in the balcony? Any receivers in the balcony? Father, I pray, indeed, we all pray for those who have raised those hands. Those are lives, those are individuals for whom Jesus died on the cross. Oh, how deeply you love each one. And how you long to wipe that slate clean and give them the assurance of salvation through your son, Jesus. Do that, Lord, we pray. Those who are watching by the internet or listening by radio, we pray the same thing. In Jesus' name, amen.